0: Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sex, cancer, and sexually transmitted infections. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, Professor of Psychology and Sex Educator. Today on Do We Know Things, can oral sex give you cancer? I wanted to begin today's episode with a random tidbit that's been rattling around in the back of my memory for years. Stay with me. The year was 2013. I was lingering in a grocery store, back in the time when you could linger in grocery stores browsing celebrity gossip magazines, when I came across a headline that immediately filled me with feminist rage. The headline was about a claim that actor Michael Douglas had made saying his throat cancer was caused by oral sex with his wife, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Specifically, he said that he had contracted human papillomavirus, or HPV, from oral sex. Does anyone else remember that? Anyone else who's as old as me? I remember being frustrated that the media were essentially claiming that performing oral sex on a vulva would basically kill you. Seven years later, this story still sticks with me. So I wanted an excuse to get to the bottom of this. What did Michael Douglas actually say? And is it true his cancer was caused by oral sex? I am joined today by Julia Kaufman, a Mount Allison University Bell Scholar intern who's working with me this summer. She dug up all the dirt on the Michael Douglas drama. After we get to the gossip, I'll also get into the research to cover the info that you actually need to know about HPV, a virus that's gotten a lot of attention over the past decade and a half, but is still widely misunderstood. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... We are shifting to a new topic today, but I want to remind people, if you haven't listened already, the last three episodes of Do We Know Things were a series about sexual assault. It was an emotional set of episodes for me, and I wanted to thank all of you who listened and who reached out. I really appreciate it. Again, I also want to thank my guests, Karen B.K. Chan of Fluid Exchange, David Castro-Harris of Amplify RJ, and Mia Hunt, who talked about her personal experience as well as her experience being a circle keeper for Hidden Water. I want to thank all of them for being so generous with their time. I also want to remind you that the full interview with Mia is posted on the Do We Know Things website. I highly recommend listening to it. We talk about abuse, addiction, family systems, and healing in much more detail than we got into on the podcast. And now I'm excited to introduce student intern Julia Kaufman to tell us all about Michael Douglas. Even though he's not as much of a
1: household name as he was in the 80s and 90s, it's worth remembering how big a star Michael Douglas is. The son of Hollywood royalty and a two-time Oscar winner, Douglas is notable for a trio of films, Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, and Disclosure, which each explored power dynamics between men and women, and sometimes not in a good way. In 2000, he married Catherine Zeta-Jones, one of the most in-demand actors of the 90s. In 2010, Michael Douglas was diagnosed with oral cancer. A few years later, in 2013, Douglas was asked by a reporter from The Guardian whether he thought his then-treated cancer was a result of his infamous drinking, smoking, and drug use, which most people just assumed it was. Unexpectedly, Douglas responded that his type of cancer was linked to HPV, which he said is contracted from cunnilingus. This statement, which was a small part of a much bigger interview, set off a media frenzy.
0: Okay, folks, can oral sex lead
1: to cancer? That's not me saying that. That's according to Michael Douglas, because he says it just might.
2: Michael Douglas opened up to The Guardian about his past diagnosis of throat cancer, revealing that HPV contracted through oral sex was to blame.
0: Major
1: revelation this morning from Michael Douglas telling The Guardian newspaper that the cause of his throat cancer was not smoking or drinking, but, quote, a sexually transmitted disease that causes the cancer. In this case, it is the HPV virus. Michael. Douglas freaking everyone out by claiming that he got throat cancer from his expert oral sex skills. Is he for serious?
2: Uh, Major front page news. uh, Michael Douglas, shocker. Sex gave me cancer. The Hollywood actor Michael Douglas has been talking frankly about his throat cancer, saying it was being caused by oral sex. He was diagnosed with the disease three years ago, but he told a newspaper it was nothing to do with too much smoking or drinking.
0: God, people were really obsessed with this.
1: Listen to this reaction from then Fox News anchor, Megan Kelly. All right, so
0: I apologize to the viewers for uh, being so squeamish on this, but, you know, it's 1.45 in the afternoon. People watch with their children. So he claims that uh, certain sexual activity down south in Rio, as we say, uh, that's south of the border on a woman's body, um, led to him contracting throat cancer. And as it turns out, this is fairly common. (laughs) Could she be any more awkward? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Quickly, his team tried to reel it back by saying that Douglas had only generally said that oral sex can cause some cancers, which led other news outlets to question whether The Guardian had gotten the story correct. So to clear it all up, The Guardian ultimately released the audio and transcript from the original conversation. The direct quote is, quote, without getting too specific... This particular cancer is caused by something called HPV, which actually comes about from cunnilingus, unquote. For those who aren't familiar, cunnilingus means oral sex on a vulva. It's clear that Michael Douglas did claim that his throat cancer was from HPV and that his HPV was contracted through cunnilingus. Now, the question is, was Michael Douglas correct? Is HPV transmitted through oral sex and does it cause oral cancers? Oral HPV can be contracted from oral sex and can in some cases lead to throat or other oral cancers. But not everyone who performs oral sex will get oral HPV and not everyone with oral HPV will get throat cancer. As Lisa Dawn will explore later, most people's immune system will actually clear out the virus without assistance within a couple of years. Looking at the research, it's clear that Michael Douglas and this whole media frenzy contributed to giving oral sex, especially performed on women, a bad rap by oversimplifying the link to cancer. It's also important to note that oral cancers are also strongly associated with heavy drinking and smoking. So his reps were right to retroactively rephrase Douglas by stating that HPV can be a cause of cancer, but was not definitively the cause of Douglas's. He also seemed to try to counter the anti-oral sex talk that was coming out by saying the cure for HPV was to have more oral sex. That is definitely not true. Of course, it was too late. Shockjacks and jerks came out criticizing Catherine Zeta-Jones for having HPV, as though Douglas didn't also have it. Here's just one example.
2: Maybe quit telling everybody she gave you cancer by tasting her. But let's be honest, it's probably from all that dick that she's been having. Well, come on. I don't
0: know. No. Really? Ah, look at the two. Oh my goodness.
1: When it was revealed that it takes many years for HPV to develop into cancer... Then the press honed in on Douglas's ex-wife, who then felt she had to make a public statement saying that she did not have HPV. I'd also like to point out that we have known for a long time that HPV is linked to cervical cancer, but nobody suggests people stop having penetrative vaginal sex. The solutions pushed for reducing cervical cancer are safe sex, frequent screening and vaccination, at least since a vaccine was approved in 2006. But when this whole media frenzy was set off by Michael Douglas's comments, it was used as a suggested reason to stop performing oral sex on women, rather than as further evidence for widespread vaccination, safer sex practices, and increased access to screening. There's already fairly pervasive sexist stigma about vaginas and oral sex, and this just fed right into the stereotypes that vaginas are somehow dirty and disease-ridden. Ultimately, Michael Douglas's comment got people talking. But because sex makes people so uncomfortable, the conversation was not about research-based facts or the actual science behind HPV. It was only about how bad cunnilingus is for you. I don't think he meant to spark the response that happened after his offhanded comment, but unfortunately it reinforced a surface-level, misinformed understanding of a really prevalent but complex virus. So for that reason, I'm really excited that Lisa Dawn is going to explore the research around HPV and get to the bottom of some of these topics.
0: Thanks, Julia, for doing all of that sleuthing to find out the Michael Douglas story. It turns out my vague memory and feminist rage dar were correct. Let's back up a bit and talk about what HPV actually is. As the name suggests, it is a virus and a very common one. Current estimates show that it's the most common sexually transmitted infection worldwide, although the incidence varies a lot in different places around the world. There are over 200 strains of HPV that do various things, including causing warts on various places on your body. Certain strains cause genital warts specifically, but are harmless otherwise. And some strains are referred to as high-risk HPV because they can potentially lead to cancers. HPV is transferred from skin to skin contact and from oral and penetrative sex. Unlike other sexually transmitted viruses like herpes virus and HIV, HPV is usually cleared by the body within one to two years. So it comes and goes, often without people knowing about it. Estimates are that about 90% of people who get the virus are able to clear it. However, about 1% of people who get HPV will go on to get cancer. Let's look at the stats around cancer and HPV. Cervical cancer is the most common cancer that results from the HPV infection. Most cervical cancer is caused by HPV types 16 and 18, but there are other ones that cause cancer. Globally, it is estimated that almost 100% of cervical cancers are caused by HPV, along with about 88% of anal cancers and 78% of vaginal cancers. Oral cancers are much less likely to be caused by HPV globally, ranging from 2 to 30%. So we know that HPV can cause cancer, but what is the actual level of risk we're talking about here? In the US and Canada, incidence of high-risk HPV in the population at any given time ranges from 15 to 30%, depending on the study. One meta-analysis of Canadian data looked at specific high-risk HPV types— And it estimated that for females, so women and girls, HPV-16 had a prevalence of about 8% and HPV-18 had a a prevalence of about 3% at any given time. And as I mentioned before, the estimates are approximately 1% of cases of HPV will convert to cancer. Globally, it's been estimated that HPV is responsible for 9% of women's cancers and less than 1% of men's. In Canada, cervical cancer is the 20th most common cancer, with approximately 1,400 people with cervixes getting it every year. The estimate for expected cases in 2020 is 1,350 people will get cervical cancer. Compare this to 30,000 for lung cancer, which is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in Canada. The incidence rate for cervical cancer in Canada is 7.1 cases per 100,000 women. We can compare this to an annual incidence rate of 491 cases per 100,000 women for lung cancer. As you can see, the rates of cervical cancer are quite low. The rates for penile, anal, vaginal, and oral cancers caused by HPV are much lower than these numbers. In the U.S., the estimated incidence rate for HPV-related cancers is 13.7 out of 100,000 for women, And about 50% of those are cervical cancer, with 14% being throat-related, and the rest were anal genital cancers. For men, the rate of HPV-related cancers is about 10.6 out of 100,000, with most of those being throat-related. For men, only about 20% of cancers caused by HPV are anal genital. There is a specific oral cancer that targets the oropharynx. It's a specific part of your throat that does seem to be often caused by HPV. Studies in the U.S. estimate that oropharyngeal cancers are caused by HPV about 70% of the time. And data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey in the U.S. found that men were three to six times more likely to have high-risk HPV strains show up in tests for oral HPV DNA. In that study, the men also reported engaging in oral sex with more partners than with women. And they also compared their small sample of gay men to the large sample of straight men and found that there was no differences in the incidence of HPV between the two groups of men, nor were there any differences between gay and straight women. So men are significantly more likely to have oral HPV and significantly more likely to have oropharyngeal cancers from HPV. But overall, women are at higher risk for HPV-related cancers. To address the Michael Douglas question, the likelihood of getting cancer through cunnilingus is very low. But if he did have specifically oropharyngeal cancer, then it is likely that it is caused by HPV. However, for other oral cancers, the likelihood of getting it through drinking and smoking is much higher. Overall, while it's clear that various types of sex, oral, anal, and vaginal can lead to HPV infections, and those in turn can lead to cancer, the rates of cancer are very low. And as I will discuss shortly, HPV vaccines are lowering those numbers even more. It's also worth noting that HPV-related cancers have a high survival rate. Of course, no one wants cancer. So how can we prevent HPV in the first place? There are a number of medical interventions currently being used to deal with HPV and the possibility of cancer. For HPV that causes warts, the warts can be removed through cryotherapy, which basically just means freezing them off. This can be very painful, and some people do not want to endure that pain. I had a wart removed on my hand once, and it was very unpleasant. I can't imagine it on my sensitive genitals. Removing warts does not get rid of HPV itself, though. The removal is strictly for aesthetic purposes, and you would still be able to transmit HPV until the virus clears from your system. That leads me to another point. Generally, there's no way to know when a low-risk version of HPV is cleared from your system. In Canada, testing for HPV at all is not very common, and in the U.S., testing is usually only done if cancer is suspected— for example, from an abnormal pap test, and the tests only check for the high-risk strains. Genital wart transmission can be reduced through using barrier methods such as condoms and dams. Because genital warts can be transmitted from skin-to-skin contact, an external condom that goes on a penis would reduce the risk, not but not eliminate it. And contrary to their name, internal condoms that go inside vaginas or anuses— actually have more external protection because they open wider at the opening. And dams, which are large rectangles of latex that go over vulvas or anuses, cover the widest area, but they can only be used for oral sex. In the big picture, though, genital warts are really not a big deal. Like most STIs, the stigma is worse than the actual infection. There are several types of vaccines available, and they're recommended to be given to children before the age of 12. Originally, the focus of the vaccine was on girls and women under the age of 26, but boys can get and give HPV too. My favorite quote from my research for this episode was an article about men and HPV that listed men's own risk ca- for cancer via HPV, but also the risk to women, quote, via men serving as reservoirs for HPV, unquote. It struck me as so funny that they referred to men as reservoirs for HPV, as though that was like their primary function in life. While it is ideal to get the vaccine before any possible exposure to HPV, there's still a benefit of getting it once you're sexually active. Please talk to your doctor if this is something you're interested in exploring. When the vaccine first came out, and even now, there was a lot of concern that giving children a quote, sex vaccine would encourage them to have sex. Of course, that's not true. Physicians and scientists and drug companies have pushed back against this narrative since the purpose of the vaccine is to prevent cancer. And who doesn't want to protect their child from cancer? Also, the vaccine only protects from one very specific thing. There are all sorts of other STIs that still are around, and people can use those to create fear of sex in their children. Clearly, that was a joke. Do not use fear based tactics as sex education. More on that in a future episode. The HPV vaccines are safe and they seem to be working. It takes 10 to 20 years for cancers to happen from HPV, but the overall incidence of HPV infections has decreased. And although they do not prevent HPV, pap tests are a screening tool for cervical cancer. A pap test involves having a speculum inserted into the vagina to hold it open, and then the person doing the test takes a swab or brush and scrapes some cells off the cervix. These cells are then tested and screened for any abnormalities that could be evidence of precancerous cells. The latest Canadian recommendations are that people with cervixes should get a pap test every three years after the age of 25. If there are abnormal cells, in the U.S., recommendations are also to test for HPV— This is what happened to me when I was in Texas. My pap test in 2006 was fine, but they actually mixed my file up with somebody else's who did have abnormalities and they accidentally tested my sample for HPV. I tested positive for a high-risk strain of HPV. Fortunately, because I knew about HPV clearance and because my physician was also well-versed in HPV, I wasn't too concerned. A year later, she tested me again and my HPV was gone. When I moved back to Canada, I asked my doctor about this, and my doctor here told me that testing for HPV isn't really done in Canada. Although my experience with HPV when I was living in Texas went okay, my friend Sheila had a much more stressful experience, and I've actually asked her to share it with us today. Hello,
2: everybody. This is Sheila Nova Cornelio. I live in Austin, Texas, and this is my HPV story. Okay, before I get into this story, I want to back up a few years prior to the story. My HPV diagnosis happened in late 2011, but several years prior to that, in my early 20s, I started to have this experience with my doctor that he possibly didn't know everything. I was fervently reading in my early 20s about nutrition, and I think I was probably, I don't know, 22 or 23 at the time. And I went to him and I said, you know, I think that I am deficient in vitamin D and B12. And he said, there's no way it's August. It's sunny outside. You're young. And I said, give me the test. And he said, insurance isn't going to cover it. You're going to pay hundreds of dollars. And I said, do it anyways. And I took those tests and they both came back deficient. And that was sort of my first experience of, hey, I told you so. And next time I really want you to listen to me going into a couple of years before I was diagnosed with HPV, I was regularly getting screened for, uh, STDs in general because I was, you know, I had multiple partners. I had, that was, a, well, I was a serial monogamous for the most part, but I was pretty much de- deliberate and pretty disciplined about getting tested before and after it wasn't perfect about it, but I did it. And, um, there's a couple before before I got diagnosed with HPV I even went to him and I said hey there's this new HPV DNA test and it tells you if you have HPV like high-risk HPV even if your pap smear comes back normal so I want that too and I even at the time he was like that doesn't exist and I was like yes it does here is a New York Times article about it (laughs) Like, and he went out of the room and came back in the room like five minutes later and he was like, all right, we can do that. Uh, So I started getting HPV DNA tests. Okay. Fast forward to 2011. I diagnosed high risk HPV and, um, I, my pap smear came back abnormal with high grade cervical dysplasia. High grade cervical dysplasia is the last phase where this It's a precancerous cell, and it's the last stage at which before the cell turns cancerous, which sounds absolutely terrifying on paper, but it's really not that terrifying. Um, I went in, I was referred to a gynecologist. She took a biopsy of my cervix. Um, They do like a tiny little hole punch in it, and they confirmed that pap smear diagnosis. Um, A biopsy is not fun, but it's not like the worst thing in the world. And... I and she immediately scheduled me for a leap, an L E E P. um, Once she confirmed that there was no wait, there was like this is going to be scheduled in like a couple of weeks from now. You're going to go under anesthesia. This is what's going to happen. A leap is where they go in and they like they cut off a small layer of the top of your cervix. So they're they just like so the abnormal cells are on the top of the cervix and they think, okay, let's just cut all that off. And then this the the pre cancer cells won't be there anymore. I'm thinking that maybe there's another option. You know, is this can this go away on its own? I'm not sure. So um I started researching, I went directly to PubMed, which for those of you who don't know, it's a online um medical journal publication where you can find medical empirical research. And I just started searching HPV, leap, cancer, you know, what happens if you wait it out, just things like that. And I read quite a few articles. Um, I did this probably for several days in a row. And all I could come up with was articles that basically the conclusion was the majority of HPV goes away on its own, high-risk HPV goes away on its own um, within two years. Even those women who are diagnosed with high-grade cervical dysplasia, like I was. And so it was like, why isn't anyone waiting this out? Why Why do you automatically get scheduled for an invasive procedure under the knife when empirical evidence is saying that this could... This is the chances of this clearing up are very good. I called up my gynecologist and I was like, look, I'm canceling the leap. I want to wait this out. And she started to berate me. And I remember thinking like, I think she said this one thing. She was like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I remember almost like wanting to laugh because I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't know what you're talking about. You like, how is it, how is a medical doctor telling me? I don't know what I'm talking about when I'm reading what medical doctors have been publishing and you're, you're like saying the, the, you know, the opposite thing. I went back to my GP and I was like, look, is this, is this going to turn into cancer in six months? If I just wait this out for six months and get another pap smear and see what it looks like. He gave me this very politically correct, very long winded answer that more or less said, no, it's not going to happen. Um, I mean, he said, like, the chances are slim to none. It just like it's very unlikely. And at the time I had been eating junk food. I wasn't taking care of myself. When I said, all right, I'm going to give myself six months before my next pap, I'm going to get on, I'm going to take supplements. I'm going to eat a lot more healthy and I'm going to see what happens in six months. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm willing to take the less than 1% chance that this is going to turn into cervical cancer. So waited six months, got got a pap smear and that's the middle of 2012. And it came back inconclusive. I, by the way, did not get a DNA HPV test this time, only got the pap came back inconclusive, which means that it was not normal, but it was not abnormal. Like whoever was reading it could just not tell it. They just didn't, it just wasn't really clear. So I talked to my doctor about that and I was like, that seems like a good sign, right? And he said a very long-winded politically correct answer, like it could be. (laughs) And so I was like, all right, I'm going to go with that. Um, I was, I'm going to continue on this journey. And in six months from now, I want to come back here and I want to get another pap smear and a DNA test. And I did that a year later, this was, you know, six months later, which would have been a year after my, my initial diagnosis and the pap smear came back completely normal. And my DNA test for HPV came back negative. So my system had completely cleared this. And I do want to say this, there were some things that I took into consideration, which was the, the partner who I had who gave me HPV, no longer um, intimate with, I was no longer having sex with at that point um, when I had been diagnosed initially, I also took in the fact that I was not diagnosed with the two most aggressive forms of high-risk HPV. Um, had I been diagnosed with the two most aggressive forms, I still would have gone through with my original plan. I would have probably demanded an HPV test maybe every once, every three months. I don't know for me that felt like that was something that would have felt more, it just would have made me feel a little bit more secure in the process. But I was so glad I did this and I was so glad that I went through with this and, um, originally when Lisa Don asked me to kind of showcase and, and tell my experience about this, um, I started to think back on like, what sort of propelled me to start taking care of my, um, sexual health really early on, because I've always done that since I was sexually active at the age of 16, 17. Um, and I really attribute that to the fact that I had access to a free clinic, Um, in high school. So as long as you were under the age of 19, you could literally go there. This was so amazing. I I like wish they had these all over the U S you could go there. No questions asked. You could get free PAPs. You could get free STD testing. You could get free birth control for one year. Like I started asking questions. I started really being empowered about my health and my parents a lot like for the most part didn't know I was doing this but I was taking charge so I think ever since because of that experience early on I really was an advocate for my own health god I wish that was more available around the U.S. Lisa Don, thank you so much for asking me to do this it was an honor So although
0: her doctor's instinct was to cut out chunks of Sheila's cervix, she luckily knew enough to advocate for herself to hold them off. Physicians tend to get frustrated when patients show up after consulting Dr. Google, but there are cases when doctors get it wrong or don't take patient concerns seriously. In Sheila's case, she didn't just Google the information. She sought out scientific research on the topic through a scientific database— PubMed is a repository in the U.S. for all health-related research. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Not everyone has the skills to understand scientific papers, but fortunately for Sheila, she did. I also think that the aggressive approach displayed by her gynecologist is less likely to happen in Canada, where medicine is a non-for-profit system and where there's less fear of being sued. So today we have learned that the media will take any excuse to shame women and their bodies, (laughs) that Michael Douglas didn't even know if his cancer was from HPV but blamed it on oral sex anyway, and that yes, oral sex can cause cancer. Overall, the risk of getting cancer from HPV is highest for cervical cancer, but even that likelihood is very low compared to other cancers. HPV vaccines have the potential to eradicate almost all of the cancer caused by HPV, especially when given prior to sexual contact. I, of course, encourage everyone to practice safer sex by using barrier methods during sexual activity. This can be done for both penetrative sex and for oral sex. But I certainly don't think that fear of HPV should stop you from engaging in oral sex, especially cunnilingus. That's all for this episode. Next time on Do We Know Things, I will dig into one of my favorite topics and one of normal people's least favorite topics, shame. I will be joined by clinical psychologist Dr. Nancy Argueta and to talk about how shame affects us and our sexuality. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at DoWeKnowThings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. Thanks to Julia Kaufman for her work on this episode. Thank you so much to Sheila Nova Cornelio for sharing her story. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at do we know Things, and you can email me at knowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.